Hey everyone, welcome to Comedy History 101, where we school you in comedy. This is Harmon. We have a brand spanking new episode today. Also, a special guest, Wayne Fetterman, whose creds include Silicon Valley, The Larry Sanders Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, also a head monologue writer for The Tonight Show, but most particularly, Wayne is the author of a new book on the history of stand-up from Mark Twain to Dave Chappelle. And we'll be doing some deep cuts into the history of comedy. But before we jump into the episode, a few things to plug. Yes, I am back to producing live shows in front of live human beings on Friday, May 28th. 8.30 p.m. I'll be producing my show, Jokey Oki, stand-up comedy karaoke game show. And you can check that out at the Crane Theater at 85 East 4th Street in the Lower East Side of New York City. Also, on June 15th, Scott and I have a film in the Tribeca Film Festival. It's our documentary, Betrayal. It's all about a East German guy who discovers his dad was a Stasi double agent. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Also, take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcast, or on our site, ComedyHistory101.com. And now, without further ado... Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured the audience. Comedy History 101. Okay, thanks, thanks. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for being on Comedy History 101. I had the uh, strange sensation where I got done reading your book, The History of Stand-Up, from Mark Twain to Dave Chevelle available on Amazon, um, got done reading, I turned on CNN, and there you were on the story of Late Night, and I thought, what what space-time continuum did I just cross through? Well, thank you for noticing me. I'm barely on that show, but I, I think I did pop up a couple times. Yeah, but very, very insightful and very happy to talk to you because as one who does a podcast on the history of comedy, I really enjoyed your book on the history of comedy. And you covered a lot of things that uh, we have talked about on our uh, podcast. And besides like all your impressive creds, when, when do you find time to teach at USC a course on the history of comedy? First of all, I just, I really, I don't really teach the history of comedy, just the history of stand up, which is a small sliver of the history of comedy. It's just a, one little lane in the big history of it all. It is. And your book made me Google things. It made me Google Cohen on the telephone, which is what was making people in 1913 laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go down the Cohen on the telephone rabbit hole on YouTube, it brings you to also Cohen at the picnic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were <laughs> there was many sequels too, to this uh, uh Idea, but that was the first, according not according to me, but according to a source, 
that that's the first million selling comedy record. So that was like the big hit comedy record of that era. Yeah. Could you describe Cohen on the telephone? I mean, I know it perfectly well because uh, I have listened to it on YouTube, but I think it also denotes a transitive property of an evolution in comedy. Well, I mean, people had been doing comedy records since the late 1800s, so it wasn't new there was a comedy record, but it did utilize the convention of hearing one end of a phone conversation and you as the audience member fill in what the other person is saying. So it was sort of like sort of like being a one-man comedy team. Are you the bank? Yes. I want to see the manager, please. I say I want to see... Uh, what do you say? This is not a telescope? It's a telephone? You think you're very clever this morning, ain't it? And this convention has been used multiple times in stand-up comedy, most notably in the late 1950s when Shelley Berman and a guy named uh, Bob Newhart put out these very extremely successful comedy albums. And both of them used the Cohen on the telephone technique. So it was, yeah, it was quite revolutionary. And also, I, I might be wrong about this, but also it's like a, just another example of comedians adapting and making fun of the what's in front of them now. Like telephone technology was starting to become rampant across the country. I mean, even when I was a kid, there was something called a party line where you would still hear other people's conversations. I mean, so it it's a, I don't know. It's just, I th- and it's also... If, you know, I know this is going to sound pretentious. Like comedy is sort of for the people of that generation, especially stand-up. So, uh, so in other words, so talking on a telephone might be a funny thing for people just now learning to use a telephone. In the same way, there's a lot of comedy now about vape pens and things like that that didn't exist too much five years ago, or certainly twenty years ago. So it's. Comedy is very generational, and that was a perfect example of uh, Mr. Heyman's uh, bit uh, called Cohen on the Telephone. Yeah, I mean, if he was around now, I'd be like Cohen on TikTok or something like that. Also, I'm, you know, I heard this interview where Shelly Berman got really irate. And again, Shelly Berman's album, um, um, where he's doing the one-sided telephone, which he, I think he did several uh, routines like that. Um, those are also like, big selling comedy records for the time. But I heard he got like really irate that Bob Newhart was stealing his shtick when Bob Newhart uh, would do, the, um, you know, the one-sided telephone calls on his records. And his records also were like the big comedy hit albums of the day. But, you know, reading your book, it all goes back to going on the telephone. So it's all, you know, just history of stand-up timeline, which even... Going further, it goes when Ellen DeGeneres did her first Tonight Show. Yep. She did like a one-sided telephone call with God. Yeah, hi, God. This is Ellen. <laughs> Ellen. DeGeneres. DeGeneres. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> no, I never thought of that. It does sound like that, doesn't it? Uh-huh. God. I get it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I know. I remember... She, I mean, she said this multiple times, but I remember at the time she said uh, that when she wrote that bit, she was like, this is Carson Reddy. This is a perfect 
Tonight Show bit and wrote it and then did it on The Tonight Show. It's incredible. But yes, 100%. And even to today, I saw recently um, at UCB, um, maybe a year ago, right before the uh, pandemic, I saw some kid doing a one-man phone call where, where he kept getting interrupted and would point to his ear like his phone was always on kind of thing. Yeah, it's been going on for a while. Yeah, and, and like you said, you know, comedy is just a testament for that time. But, you know, that time, 1913, and, you know, again, uh, you know, while other things go to the wayside, it, once again, Cohen on the telephone here, here has uh, stood the test of time. Though, though, you know, if you listen to the the, the routine itself, I think that's what gets lost in the test. But the the, the concept is, uh, you know, very timely. Of course, of course. I love that you. I'm surprised you didn't know about Cohen on the telephone. It was a big. It was a big. They used to make fun of it on radio shows all the time in the 30s and 40s. It was like a big cultural reference point. Oh yeah. What what would be the shtick where they would make fun of Cohen on the on the telephone? Like on the Jack Benny show and stuff. They would they would mention that routine as uh, like this something that was very old, something that was like very old. Like in the same way we would mention, I don't know, like you know the Ed Sullivan show or something like that. Another thing that, uh, again, uh, reading your book that I, I didn't know, you know, the Marx Brothers, okay, first, Harpo was originally portraying Irish immigrant Patsy Bannigan. Yes, indeed. Gracho Chico, Patsy Bannigan, <laughs> and, and, and Zeppo. No, Zeppo came into the movies. I think it was Gummo in the, in the vaudeville days. Right. This, I was just trying to explain stand-up monology before uh, Bob Hope and Jack Benny and Milton Berle and all of those guys who were just dudes kind of in sharp suits doing stand-up, which is sort of what happens today. Now, not every comedian wears a suit, but it's one person on stage speaking as themselves or as a, as a version of themselves. But back then, most of the comedy was based on ethnic stereotypes. So, Everything from blackface to Irish to Scottish to German to, as as the Marx Brothers, Italian, Irish, and German were their three archetypes. And and so that's what, well, the state, I was just trying to explain what most of the comedy was based on back then because it was a big melting pot sort of experiment. And then... So the Marx Brothers are the most famous. It's weird because uh, I teach this class at USC and, again, in stand-up, and I asked the class, can you name the Marx Brothers? And half the class didn't even know who the Marx Brothers were, let alone be able to name them. And I was like, okay, that's really interesting. Like, And then I thought to myself, that probably makes sense because when I was a kid, there was a huge Marx Brothers revival that started when they uncovered that movie animal crackers and so there was and then kids on college campuses were really into groucho it was during the vietnam war i guess it started in the late 60s maybe and that movie duck soup is sort of an anti-war movie and groucho was you know i guess maybe in his 80s or 70s or 80s at that time and so anyway, so it kind of makes sense. It was shocking to begin with. I was like, how do you not know the Marx Brothers? It seems silly. 
But then I realized, oh, that does make sense. And also, like, time moves. Like, it moves really fast. So, like I like to say, like, for comedians in my class, like, Dimitri Martin is, a you know, a, a comedian from the 90s that maybe their parents liked. It was like, what? Okay. All right. So I'm just kind of getting used to, like, how fast this all flips over. This is my takeaway of the Marx Brothers thing is I didn't know. I mean, it's it's apparent because the only holdover of that uh, really ethnic comedy uh, with the Marx Brothers is Chico, you know, doing his fake Italian accent. But as you mentioned, like, Gracha was supposed to be, like, a German immigrant. And I don't know what Gummo was doing. But, you know, again, it's also probably linked to, you know, New York comedy immigrant culture, which you still kind of see in the New York comedy stuff. Right, right, right. Now, I was just talking about mainly those three guys. But here's an interesting thing is the German stereotype in the late 1800s and right up until World War I was very popular. But then after the sinking of the Lusitania, suddenly people weren't quite in the mood to be doing German characters. So Groucho, in a way, sort of turned out to be more just a fast-talking trickster guy, almost a little Yiddishy, you know, because German and Yiddish are extremely close. It's the, almost the basis of the same language. So, so it was sort of in that regard, and so it was a little less Germany after German E after uh, the beginning of World War One. It was interesting, kind of like that. That fell out of fashion. And just through the vaudeville era, again, what what do you think has stuck around to this modern era? What like tropes were were conceived in the vaudeville era that we still see in stand up? Oh well, obviously the master, the MC, the MC that works the crowd that started in vaudeville, and the comedian that comes out on stage, strides out on stage, does a bunch of jokes, and then finishes up. That's still today. That's of all what didn't was kind of the outlandish costumes. Like, there was a comedian named Ed Wynn, who's, and he had a hat, and he had a thing, and he had a piano on a, uh, like he would, <laughs> on a bicycle, on the front of a bicycle that he would roll around. And so I don't think that really has continued. But it, who knows? It might come back. And I just remember... Yeah, yeah, those are the ones I would say. I, I would say like so. There's a lot of the roots of modern stand-up are directly to vaudeville. No, no question. Excuse the end of vaudeville. The end of vaudeville, like in the twenties. Yeah, we actually we did an episode on Frankie Faye. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. and who's who's and and um, we did it like a deep dive into him, and and he's known as the kind of like that modern. I'm talking to the audience. I'm not a character. I'm just a guy talking to the audience. MC, I, I don't. Know, would you say he was the the like father or grandfather of modern standup, or denoted as such? I, I would say he was one of them. I would say he's definitely one of them. He because he got held over at the the premier comedy venue at the time. The excuse me, the premier show business venue at the time, which was called the Palace Theater, which is on like 47th Street and Broadway in New York City and or maybe 7th Avenue. And it's like it is so like to play the palace was like to have a Netflix special or to play the car doing Carson in the 80s. It was like the premier booking. And then when he started emceeing, 
again, not as a ethnic character, but just like a sharp looking Irish guy, good head of hair, like we come out confident and then people went nuts for it. And yes, he was one, but there was other comedians at that time, Julius Tannen. There was like a, a not quite headlining the palace guy named Charlie Case who did blackface stand up, but he directly addressed the audience and so there was a number of them, but certainly Frank Fay was at the, a lot of historians put him at the head of that class. No question. And most importantly for us uh, was that Bob Hope saw him in Cleveland and it blew his mind. And Bob Hope was like, oh, I can do that. That's something I, I don't have to sing and dance and be part of this comedy team or sing and song and dance team. So that absolutely revolutionized what Bob Hope saw. And even if you read early reviews of Jack Benny, they all refer to him as a Frank Fay-esque comedian. So, yeah, no question. I mean, without getting into the crazy politics of Frank Fay, um, yes, he's very influential. But I would say there was more than just Frank Fay doing that, that new style of comedy. No question. Yeah, I mean, he was like one of the biggest stars on Broadway, and he's, uh, again, just completely lost to history. I don't know. First of all, I don't think he is lost. I don't think he's lost to history. He's like he was on, on in Harvey on Broadway, and he was married to like one of the biggest movie stars of that era, Barbara Stanwyck. And I, I think a lot of people still kind of know who he is. I mean, show business people. But um, yeah, Frank Fay is a very important guy. Well, I think I think if like to your class, if the Marx Brothers are lost, <laughs> oh, you're right. They're, they're not going to know Frank. Armin, Fay. you're absolutely right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I stand corrected. That he is kind of in the modern sense of it. Yes, he is lost. Yes, I'm, you are right. I am wrong on that. Just, uh, as a trivia note, uh, he's he. Some say he was the basis for the original uh, Stars Born yep, story yep. when he was married to Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, of course, of course. You know your stuff. You know your stuff, brother. That's why I was really digging your book because, you know, A, you know, uh, there's stuff we've touched upon, but B, you know, always just learning more is, is, is the key thing, you know? Now, did you know, did you know about Elsie Janis performing for troops overseas in World War One? Uh, no, I did not. No. I, and was she the first uh, uh, comedian to perform for troops? Well, she was more of a variety performer than straight up comedy, but her big closer was she would do impressions Mm -hmm. and these impressions. She got to the point where she kind of resented the fact that people thought of her as an impressionist and not as an actress or, you know, a singer. And but she yes, she she was over in England at the time and then went to France to entertain the boys. And this is 20 years before Bob Hope and the USO started that. There wasn't a USO, by the way. So that's a tradition that stand-up comedians, right up to myself, not to bring myself into it, but Robin Williams and uh, Drew Carey and Martha Ray and all kinds of comedians have entertained the troops ever since Elsie Janis did it overseas in 1917, probably 1918. And you mentioned, uh, you know, there's like, say, like a Frankie Faye and others that really shape comedy and influenced comedy. Who do you think is like really, really influential, but was lost to history? I'll, I'll just give an example of who you mentioned, Wally Bogue. And, and I, oh, just, yes. I Googled him and uh, checked out some of his bits. And, and it's astonishing because uh, 
he like influenced a young Steve Martin as a Disneyland performer. And then I watched some of his like YouTube bits and there was like Steve Martinisms in it, which was, you know, just fun to of watch. Course. I give Uncle Walt Disney 14,000 balloons a month for the use of this space. 14,000 balloons a month. Talk about inflation, huh? <laughs> inflation? Balloons? Nothing. This was one of the themes. Thank you for noticing that, Harmon. This was one of the themes of my book, mm -hmm. was that none of these most, very few comedians come out like, oh, I'm just an original, not influenced by anything. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, Steve Martin, when, when Wally Boat died, he tweeted out, like, this was my comedy hero. Yeah. He was the one that really influenced. And you can see it. I mean, you can see it in Steve Martin's <laughs> throwaway delivery. And you can see it, obviously, in the balloon animals. Yeah. And you can see it when Steve Martin does Happy Feet, that obviously Wally Bogue was an eccentric dancer. And I I just got his book, by the way. Steve Martin's and, book? Because uh, I'm really interested. No. You know, I mean, I've had Steve Martin's book since it came out. But Wally Bogue's book. And very hard to find. And... Because I'm really interested in his career, which was, you know, a nightclub performer. He did a couple Ed Sullivan's shows. He actually performed for President Roosevelt at a at a dinner, at one of those correspondence dinners. And he was one of the first comedians to sell merchandise after the show, something that a lot of comedians do today. And again, like his YouTube videos were, uh, you know, just really fun to watch because of uh, it's like, yeah, uh, Steve Martin is 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 right there. So, um, I mean, besides comedians, what do you think were, you know, you stem all the way back to, you know, Mark, even before Mark Twain days. What do you think were the big game changing milestones that changed the face of stand up? That's a good question. Like, how do you how do you mean like a game changer? Like, because people are still standing on stage doing comedy. Okay, so if you had like a poster and it's like the poster of evolution, so you see like you know where it evolves up to like a, a walking upright man. What would be those like four <laughs> bits that would uh, take you to where modern stand up is today? That's a great question. I would put. I would put this is I, this is off the top of my head. Yeah, just off the top of my head. Uh, it's too hard. It's I, I don't <laughs> think I can do four, but I'll give you a few that I think are very important. Sure. I really think um, Will Rogers is very important. Mm -hmm. Eve as an important as important as Mark Twain and Artemis Ward and those guys. I really think um, Bob Hope is important. And I to stand up. We're just talking about stand up now. And then I think, oh, then I I hate to say it. I think Bob Newhart and that record is very important, mm -hmm. more so than even Mort Saul, even though he came out of that thing. And then obviously I would put Carlin Pryor and Robert Klein, and then Mom's Mabley. Yeah. Oh, and Dick Gregory. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I can't believe I forgot Dick Gregory. And then oh, Dick yeah. Dick Gregory, who's like the Jackie Robinson of stand-up. Yep. And then um, and then in the modern, I don't know. Um, Jesus, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. It might be. It might be the guy on the cover of my book. It might be Chappelle, mm -hmm. and because he just, 
I've never seen a comedian in my lifetime where, like, we have a presidential election and Chappelle goes on SNL and talks about the president. Like, it's so interesting. Like, we've never had a stand-up like that. And then, um, I don't know. I mean, certainly Amy Schumer is huge. There's so many, but I would say it's along those lines. Yeah, I would say along those lines. Maybe Joan Rivers in there. Maybe Joan Rivers in there. I, I would love to hear if anyone listens that you can tweet at me at Fetterman, and I'd love to hear. I'm probably missing somebody huge, but I'm thinking about you know I'm thinking about Jack Benny and Fred Allen and all those radio guys, and I they're important, but I do think Will Rogers was probably more important. When Will Rogers died, it was a national tragedy to the point where they stopped playing movies during his funeral. They radio stopped transmitting. Federal buildings dropped their flags to half mast as if a president had died. I mean, it was intense in 1935 when that happened. Yeah, he died in a plane crash, correct? Yes, yes, he died in a plane crash in Alaska with Wiley Post. Wiley Post was the pilot. Oh wow, you know the pilots. Well, you should look up Wiley Post. He's a very interesting character in the history of modern aviation. I will. will. And, and also, you mentioned like Dick Gregory. And that is, you know, again, we've done a Dick Gregory episode. And as you mentioned, he was the Jackie Robinson of uh, of comedy. And, and it's just insane. Well, maybe it's not insane to think that it was 1961 where uh, he was the first African-American to play in a, in a, in a white club. Yeah, just so we're clear, he's not the first one to play in a white club, but he was the first one to headline a white club. And I actually think Timmy Rogers might have done one earlier, but this was the first one where it was like, uh, where, where was a thing. And he, yeah, yeah, there was there was a few cracks in the wall already, but he was the one that literally shattered, maybe the ceiling is the better metaphor. I'm bad at metaphors, sorry, Armin. Uh, but he was the one that really broke, he really broke through. Yes. No question. That was insane what he did. And it, and it's funny if you think about it, how fast, like all those, the next generation of African-American comics just dominated. Like Cosby is on the tonight show within two years of that event. And Pryor is on, on ABC on Broadway tonight in 1964 so that's three years later i mean it was like where and mom's mainly and all you know godfrey cambridge and nipsey russell and it was just the doors flew open and it was so yeah not that long ago by the way not that you know less than like six six years ago right it's 60 years this year so it's um by the way can i ask you a question yeah so you tell me about your podcast and what is there anything I missed in my book? You're just like, ah, oh, Fetterman, you're an idiot. You missed this. I'm the expert on com- comedy history 101. What did, what did I miss? Is that, did, wait, wait, just, sorry. Let me hear sorry. The wait, was that your impression of me? Just, uh, oh, please. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm not good oh on impressions. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. What was the question? I, I was so taken back by your perception of me just going, I'm the, sorry, what was it again? I'm the host of comedy history 101. And no, sorry. What, what was the question? I was saying, was there any, was there anything either a, I missed or B emphasized the wrong thing. And 
you're like, oh, he got this wrong <laughs> because of his own biases or something like that. Was there anything that caught your eye? You're like, oh, Fetterman, you're not as good as you think you are. No, no, I think you, you portrayed it accurately. And when you would bring up someone, it's like, or an era, I go, oh, I, I, like, I'll just give an example of something we just talked about. I'll go, oh, he's probably not going to mention Frankie Faye. See, that's a better impersonation of me being <laughs> comedy history pompous. But you did. You mentioned Frankie Faye. I mean, there's there's like little nuances, you know, as there is, you know, to every story. Like, you know, say the history of the hook as a stand up trope, which was uh, I mean, you touched upon right. some of the venues, which was like I think it's called like the Bowery Minor Miners Bowery Theater, where the hook as yes, yeah, pulling the comedian. Yep offstage was uh, originated. Right, but it wasn't just comedians that got pulled off by yeah. the hook. It was tap dancers. It was jugglers. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was any kind of act that wasn't going over while well got the hook. Exactly. I do mention Miner's Theater because along with the hook, and maybe I should have put that in there, mm -hmm. they were the first that I know of that did amateur night. Yes. And that starts in the 1880s. And obviously, um, Eddie Cantor in the 1890s kind of gets discovered as a kid there. But yes, so a lot of people, it's so funny, like uh, the Apollo Theater, there was a thing where like, we created the amateur night. It was like, yeah, no, I'm 45 years, 55 years ago, they were doing amateur nights. But I will say, I do think the Apollo Theater is the longest running continuous amateur night in American history right now because they're they're still going. They still do it once a week. They do, and they have sort of their version of the hook, which is the Sandman who comes on, which is their kind well, of... Well, yeah, he's not around anymore, but yes, yes, there's a guy who will tap dance you off stage. Yes, they have their... Or sometimes the audience will just boo those guys off stage. But that all goes back to Miner's Bowery Theater. Very good. Look at you, Harmon. Look <laughs> at you. Oh, should, should I just bring up one more? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so we did an episode once on Abbott and Costello's Who's on First, but that routine was derivative. That was just a plain dairy derivative of a lot of other vaudeville root bits that were kind of like Who's on First. Um, so Abbott and Costello were the first ones to take it, but they applied it to baseball and then they were on radio and, you know, that just killed it for other vaudeville acts because you know, back then, uh, you know, as you know, it was just commonplace just to sort of take other people's routines and kind of change them around. But the lineage of it, who's on first just goes back to several others where you can even find in old movie clips where they would do a who's on first type of routine. So, again, just something I found interesting of that era. Right, right, right. No, I again, that's of that era. And I agree with you 100 percent. But. I try not to, I mean, I mentioned comedy teams early just because of how important they were in the beginning of vaudeville, but I don't, re I don't really talk about, I don't talk about Stiller and Mirror. I don't talk about, uh, yeah, what is the guy, <laughs> Nichols and May or Martin and Lewis that much, just a little bit. So, so that's why I didn't go into who's on first, but you're absolutely correct about who's on first. By the way, here's a little bit of trivia for sure. you. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Because it's so Kate Smith, there was two shows that really showcased comedians in a big way. One was Rudy Valley, obviously, where a lot of comedians broke on. And the other was Kate Smith. So this is in the 30s, maybe 36, 37, that era. 
and Kate Smith discovers Henny Youngman. And he comes in and he has a great set and then he does another set. And then he has to go out to Hollywood immediately for a screen test, Mm -hmm. which I guess he failed because he came back. But while he was gone for a screen test, the next act they brought in to cover for the Henny Youngman spot was Abbott and Costello, who were this burlesque comedy team. And that's how they got on Kate Smith, which and they were a sensation on Kate Smith. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think they did who's on first the first time they were on even, but uh, they eventually did. And you know, obviously, huge comedy team. But just a little sidebar trivia for anyone. I feel like we just lost half our audience <laughs> by going talking about Rudy Valley, but it's part of the history. Of, it's part, part of, of the, the history, history of that's, comedy, right? There. Exactly, exactly. And part of it also, again, I guess you know. With the vaudeville stuff that applies to modern day, which I learned from your book, is uh, the small timer circuit, which was kind of like the vaudeville road gigs. You you mentioned one that was, you know, there's the head. I, I forgot what the main vaudeville, you know, gig was called, but then there was like two tiers down of the vaudeville thing. And it was like kind of like minor league baseball. And you mentioned one gig was like next to a bowling alley. And that's just basic modern bad one-nighter scenarios of today no question and they used to call it in the nightclub era i don't know if in the vaudeville i would like again if someone's listening and knows when this term but they used to call those gigs plain toilets was the, <laughs> what they would call it i played a toilet outside scranton i played a <laughs> toilet in you know milwaukee so those were the low-end show business gigs not in these big you know, you think of vaudeville as these big, opulent theaters, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, there's this. Yeah, that's where Charlie Case was. Charlie Case, I don't think, was like a a big uh, vaudeville headliner. I don't think he was a Keith Orpheum guy at all. Mm-hmm. So, but that's why it's hard to find stuff about his act. Yeah, and I think even like the worst gigs in playing the small timers once was something called the walkathons, which you mentioned. Oh yeah, I think. Do you think that was probably the worst gig of the time? Because it just seems like that just seemed grim. Or well, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. I I, I just like it was a heartbreaking gig to do as a stand up. Like you're trying to get laughs, and these poor people you know, in the middle of the depression or just walking around in a circle trying to make whatever, several hundred dollars so they don't lose their farm. I mean, Jesus. But um, yeah, those were, those were quite, quite depressing. No pun intended. They would just be like commentary or were they do material or what was sort of their... Well, have you ever seen the movie? Have you ever seen the movie... um, they shoot horses, don't they? From 1969. I have, and uh, a second yeah. part of that question is uh, Red Buttons, who's a comedian, is in that movie, and I wonder if he was actually in the Walkathon era. Um, he was around at that time. That's a good question. I wish he was still alive. I would love to ask him if he ever had to MC <laughs> that. But they had um, God. I can't think of the Oscar, the actor. He won an Oscar for it. He would do the yowza yowza yowza. Like he would do just high energy. Here they go, round and round they go. Like, uh, do you remember that actor's name? He was. I don't. I can. So I can almost picture it. I mean, it's a great movie, and and I think Jane Fonda starred in the movie. Um, but yeah, but I guess that's what like people leaving comments on our Apple page 
could yeah tell us. it's easy enough it's easy <laughs> I, I just don't want to look it up i'd like when yeah. i don't have things in my brain i just like i'll just be ignorant i, I mean yes obviously i could look it up but i I want to see Darren or something like that. I can't. Why can't I think of that dude's name? Really fun actor. Yeah, and a great movie. And but I think that would be just <laughs> the awful. I would pick playing next to the bowling alley over <laughs> the walkathons of people just going around in circles for hundreds of hours on end. Um, but another thing that you know I think often gets misconstrued is just the term in itself, stand-up comedian. People think you know it's it's uh, because they stand up. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, there's the, the mob uh, kind of connotation to that. Right. And there's still controversy on exactly how that term came about. I wish I knew. That's one of my, that's like a little bit of my white whale. Mm-hmm. Like I'm Captain Ahab on this one. Like I've been <laughs> looking for years and I cannot find a guy or even a guy that worked at Variety that would talk about it. I think, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, it was all I know is that stand-up comedy meant to meant to signify that it was a comedian alone on stage. It wasn't a musical act. You didn't have to send props or anything special lighting. You just plopped down a microphone. He stood up in front of it and told jokes, and that's all he did. Yeah, and I, and I guess you know you also mentioned the other theory, which is um, it it's just like sort of a term like you would say a boxer. He's a stand-up boxer or, you know, a good guy. He's a stand-up guy. And it was the same with a comic. He's like a stand-up comic. You know, it just sort of meant you were solid or whatever. Yeah, that's one of many. I only put in two that there were, there's many other theories as well. But I only put in two in the book because I was trying to write the history. And obviously I failed in that little regard. <laughs> but I do know that the term came around in or the late 40s because it's not in any newspapers mm-hmm. or anything before then. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere. But a connection that you might make is the late 40s. We're coming out of the Prohibition era. And that's sort of when you got your clubs like Coca Cabana, in which were every city sort of had a Coca Cabana, was when um, the mob went from speakeasy to now it's legal again to sell alcohol. That's when they started bringing in the entertainment. Right. I'm talking about the late 40s, not the 30s. Ah, gotcha. Prohibition ends in 32. I'm talking about 15 years later. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess just like a couple of last questions here. Would, who would be your Wally Bogue? Just you as a personal, just like who, who were the comedians? That, oh, yeah, that, me as a stand-up? That, yeah, that said, I want to be a stand-up. Well, there's a couple. I mean, obviously, I like many famous comedians, but there was... Uh, there's one guy who is a bit of my Wally Bogue, and his name is Roger Ray. Mm-hmm. And he was a, he played the marimbas, not the xylophone, uh, marimbas, and did stand up and was a, played the, the big presentation houses and toured all over the countries in the 50s and 60s and 70s, played Radio City a lot of times. There's a clip of him from the Hollywood Palace that's on YouTube. You can catch a little of his act, and it's he was just great. He just real. I really liked what he was doing on stage. But I just came back off a small t- uh, town tour. You wouldn't believe this, but I played a town so small, the Knights of Columbus and the Masons knew each other's secrets. <laughs> Did you ever see a town with one yellow page? <laughs> Did you ever check? No, 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 no. Oh, it's too late to make up now. <laughs> There's also a comedian 
I wouldn't say lost to history because he has these iconic movie roles, but right. uh, Dick Sean, I very much liked. Oh, the producer. Um, Great. As a young comedian. Yeah. Right. People know him from the producers, but he also had a very kind of alt comedy act that I just adored. Thank you much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I doubt if many of you have ever seen me before. Most of the people that work are usually very big motion picture names, great recording artists, very famous people. I'm very proud to say that I happen to be one of the better unknowns. <laughs> yeah, he's great in the producers, like that crazy beatnikish character. It's not just the producers. It's also a mad, 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 mad world. He's like, he's incredible, that dude. Yeah. And if you could perform comedy other than this era right now, be transplanted any era of stand-up, which, which would it be? Can I go into the future? Because I'd love to do the future. I'd like to see what it's like <laughs> in Mars? three years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an open-ended question. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to see what stand-up comedy is like in 2050. That's really... What I'm most curious about. What 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 is your hypothesis? I mean, we're coming out of the COVID. I don't know. That's what I. That's yeah. I, I Harmon, that's a great question. I have no idea, man. Yeah, I guess I just, so. <laughs> I'm a historian. I I can only look back. I don't. I have no idea. And, and what do you think? You know, now we're coming out of the COVID era. Uh, how how do you think like COVID will change the course of history? I mean, again, we've had like for the most part all the live shows shut down which begot, you know, the Zoom comedy, which now will probably be a mainstay sort of thing. You know, how do you think, you know, coming out of lockdown, how do you think that will change comedy? Again, you keep asking me questions <laughs> about the future. I harmonize. Okay, I wish okay. I could answer it. You're putting me in a bad spot here. <laughs> like, I don't know. I have a hunch. I have a hunch that there's going to be an online component. I don't know whether it's 20%. I don't know whether it's 40% I, of comedians' life as a performer going forward. I, I, it might be 5%. It might just be, oh, I have to be on Twitter a lot, and that's how I connect. I, I'm, oh, man. I hate to be a terrible guest. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. I, don't I, know. I, I should have read the bio again. You wrote a book on the history of comedy. Not hypotheses on the future of comedy. <laughs> Get to that. I mean, I guess uh, something easier to um, to ask, which I forgot to ask, is uh, you know the history of the Tonight Show as a game changer. You know, as a milestone of comedy. And again, you know, I I, I read it in your book, but you know, just tell us, you know, briefly, because because I, I read your book and then I turned on CNN and there you are, a, a talking head talking about you know the history of late night. Uh, you know. How how do you feel the Tonight Show in, in brief, you know, changed stand up? I mean, it was huge, it's especially after 1971 when the Ed Sullivan show went off the air. And that was sort of like the main showcase for comedians, even though it wasn't quite as strong as it was when it was, during, you know, in the late 50s and 60s. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> obviously. But it even goes back to Jack Parr. Like, Jack Parr brought on, we spoke about him earlier, right? Uh, Dick Gregory. He brought Dick yeah. Gregory onto the show, and he brought the Smothers Brothers onto the show, and a lot of those, what I call new wave comedians, mm -hmm. never had Lenny Bruce on. Lenny Bruce did a couple Steve Allen shows. And so, yo, by the way, in that list earlier, I guess I should also add Lenny Bruce to that list of... I don't know why I forgot him. That's crazy. Um, but 
yeah, the Tonight Show is, <laughs> yes, it was, it was the destination booking. Like I said, it was like playing the Palace during vaudeville or playing the Sullivan Show in the 50s and early 60s or playing uh, or being on, having an HBO special in the 80s and 90s or having a Netflix special now. It was, you were, in mafia terms, you were like a made man if you mm-hmm. did stand up on The Tonight Show and did well on The Tonight Show. And, and how do you feel, you know, as, as, as being a writer for The Tonight Show, how do you feel, you know, being part of that long history of, you know, New York City uh, joke writing, which stems back to, like, say, in the 50s when they would all, like, hang out at that one, I forgot the name of the restaurant where, you know, all the joke writers would, would hang out at. Um, how, how does it feel, you know, again, you know, you are part of that history. It was incredible. Look, you know me. I'm a comedy nerd, Harmon. Yeah. Like, I was like, yeah, that's what I'm asking. That's what, yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe. Not only did I get to work at Rockefeller Center at Thirty Rock, mm-hmm. but I go in the building and I we tape on the sixth floor in an old radio studio, which is six B, and we're taping where Johnny Carson used to do the Tonight Show and Jack Parr did the Tonight Show from you know from '58 till. 72 the two of them and then but even before that that's the same studio where milton burl did the texaco star theater starting in 1948 till 52 or so 53 maybe uh, until they moved it out to california and stuff uh i don't even know if i'm getting that right i know they did the milton burl show from california so that was 55 and 56 so maybe you went to 54 in new york and yeah, so that studio is just. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get sentimental. No, but it was get incredible. sentimental. I couldn't believe I was. Yeah, I couldn't believe I was part of it. No, I mean, not to get new agey, but could you feel the spirits in the room, the spirits of comedy, like in the walls? No, it was just me. <laughs> it was just, it was just me. Like no one cared. Yeah. No one working there cared really. <laughs> And then no one knew it. I mean, there was a couple old guys working at NBC that knew it. Yeah. And you know who I did actually speak with it, who's on the story of St- of Late Night, which is on CNN? Yep. Was Rick Ludwig. And he was the head of at Late Night for NBC. And he had a real affinity for the history of it. And, but... That that was it. No one, no, no one really cared but me. Uh, it's all right. It's I. It doesn't matter. I mean, no, it, it doesn't you know, it's matter. Just a, it's just a studio. It's just it's just a radio studio. To tell you the truth, that place. Well, you could just apply that to everything. It's just a statue of says you of you know the Lincoln Memorial. It's just a studio. It's you know it has an attachment if you want to have an attachment to it. Well, it's see, I mean, this is the, Harmon, this is the honest truth. I think most people, when they walk into that building, were much more interested in what went on two floors above 6B in Studio 8H, where they started doing SNL Mm -hmm. in 75. And that's still going. Like, people are into that studio. They are like, they want to see that thing. And that's the biggest of all the radio studios at, at there. And so it's not that people weren't interested in it. It wasn't like, but they, that's back to 75. I'm like talking about 1948. Mm-hmm. I'm just a weirdo. I'm just a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and, and just lastly, just in general, um, 
with your history of comedy, and this is always a question I always like asking, and always when I hear on podcasts, you know, even if it's like Eddie Murphy talking about when he was 17 doing, you know, stand-up shows in Long Island, at, you know, where they weren't going to pay him as like a 17-year-old because like some adult club owner was mad at him. Like, what, what do you remember is like the worst stand-up gig you've ever done from like road story horror stories? Well, one of the worst gigs I ever did was at the Holiday Inn in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, early on in my career. And it was for a number of reasons. They, they wanted an hour of material, and I had maybe 25 minutes, but I thought I could stretch it. But it, they decided to divide it into two halves. And then so I got through the first half, and then I ran up to the, you know, they gave me a hotel room. And then through the floor of the hotel room, I could hear them announcing me for the second half of the show. I was like, what? I'm being announced? I'm not even? Okay. <laughs> so the whole thing was just a disaster. <laughs> Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, I would say, was the lowest. And uh, lastly, any, any other takeaways on the history of comedy? And where can people find your book? Oh, thank you for saying that. You can just go on. You can order from any bookstore. Uh, especially if you'd like to support a local bookstore is a great way to do it. It might not be on their shelves because I don't know how many people are interested in it, but they can definitely order it for you. It's only eleven ninety nine. It's just in paperback uh, and, or you can get it from Amazon. And if you have prime, they'll deliver it for free right to your house or there's a Kindle version and I'm about to release the audio version. So, so Amazon is the easiest, but if you don't want to support like a huge company with the richest guy in the world, <laughs> I can understand that. Here, here. So Wayne, thanks so much uh, for coming on Comedy History 101. I really enjoyed both talking to you and reading your book. Thanks a lot. You're very welcome. Okay, that was our conversation with Wayne Fetterman. And yes, be sure to check out his book. I enjoyed reading it. Also, once again, take time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101. Throw some stars up there, make a wry comment, and we'll read it on the air. And once again, on May 28th, 8.30, Crane Theater, Jokey Stand-Up Comedy Karaoke. And on June 15th, our film in the Tribeca Film Festival, Betrayal. It will be screening at 5 p.m. Thanks a lot for tuning in, and bye-bye. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured audience. You're stupid. Everybody's so stupid. Comedy History 101.